At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. There are a number of ways that we celebrate at Christmas time. And one of those things that we do at Christmas is we decorate. We decorate our house as a church family. Um, you may decorate your house, but you have a lot of decorations that may be favorites for you. It might be a nativity set. It might be a tree with some ornaments placed upon it. You might have a wreath that you put on your front door. But one of my favorite Christmas decorations, and maybe it's yours also, are, are Christmas lights. I love lights at Christmas time. I don't know if it goes back to the fact that I was scared of the dark as a child, or maybe I own some stock in OG&E I wasn't aware of, or, or something. Uh, but, but I think it actually goes a little deeper than that, right? I mean, Christmas lights are, are pretty, but they're also pretty significant. Because unlike many decorations we have at Christmas time, lights are actually talked about connecting Christmas uh, to our world. Because it is in Scripture that Jesus is often referred to as the light of life or the, the light of men or the light of the world. And his arrival in Bethlehem brought that light onto the earth. And so it's very appropriate at Christmas time for us to string lights and to turn them on. Because let's be honest, we live in a dark world, don't we? There's a lot of darkness around us. When I say that, uh, you don't have to think very hard to, to think about some darkness. It might be related to disease or death. It might be connected to divorce. It might be connected to struggle with sin. It might be connected to someone who was at your Thanksgiving table. Or it might be connected to someone who was conspicuously absent from your Thanksgiving table. Friends, we are in a world that has a lot of darkness around us. And as we think about living our lives in the midst of this dark world, isn't it encouraging and isn't it hopeful and isn't it necessary for us to take time over the next month and remember the light that shines in the darkness? And friends, the darkness cannot overtake it. This month, we're going to be talking about Christmas light, looking at a number of different passages in the Scriptures that talk about Jesus as the light of life, the light of the world, specifically those passages that are highlighted and connected to the Christmas account. And today, we're going to begin that series by looking at a prophecy that was given 700 years before Jesus was born. It was somewhat of a pre-birth announcement of Jesus. You know, oftentimes in our world, you have a baby, you send out an announcement. Well, when you're God, when you know you're going to have a baby, you go ahead and send the announcement early. And that's what we have in Isaiah. Specifically in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we have a proclamation, a promise of the coming of Christ and the light that he would bring. And so today, I want us to spend some time reading Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and then after I read it, we'll back up and we'll see two things today from this passage that will hopefully give us hope as we live inside of a dark world. So let's look at this together. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are as glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, friends, as we think about these verses today, I want us to see two things from these verses that both remind us of the darkness around us, but also of the light and the hope that is found in Jesus. So where do we begin? We'll begin in the first two verses of this section, as we'll see this, on those living in deep darkness, dot, dot, dot. On those living in deep darkness, You feel like one of those who is living in deep darkness? If so, your experience is not new or unique, but it goes all the way back to a time 700 years before Jesus was born, when deep darkness was found on the earth. Now, before we we see all of that from this passage, I think it's helpful for us to get some context about Isaiah chapter 9 so that we can understand the prophecy a little better. See, the nation of Israel had been established by God. God had invited the Hebrew people who were slaves in Egypt to leave Egypt, and he ushered them through the Red Sea and into the land of Palestine that he had given to them. And over a number of years, they established themselves inside of that nation. And after the nation was established of Israel, they, they operated as one nation for a period of about 100 years under three different kings, 12 tribes of Israel, one nation under three different kings. The first of those kings was Saul, the second was David, and the third was Solomon. Now, after that time of being under those leaders, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, had a taxation plan that did not agree with the people. And so a number of people rebelled against Rehoboam. And the 10 tribes in the northern part of Israel rebelled against the two tribes 
that were led primarily by Judah in the south. And what you had is the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, when that split happens, Judah hangs on for a while, but Israel goes bad quick. And they begin to fall apart. And Isaiah the prophet is is sent by God to speak to that northern kingdom of Israel and to give them a promise right on the brink, right on the cusp, right on the edge of when they will cease to exist as a nation as God will discipline them by having the invading army from Assyria come and disperse them among the nations. That's the context of Isaiah chapter 9. And so into that context, we see this prophecy given by God. Now, what's what's fascinating about verse 1 and 2 is we find the nation of Israel in a very difficult spot. Remember that northern kingdom, they were in a difficult spot. Just look at some of the words that are used to describe them in this passage. It is said that they have gloom. It is said that they are in anguish. It is said that they are in contempt. Not only does it it say those things, but it goes on and says in verse 2 that they were walking in darkness, that they were dwelling in a land of deep darkness. That does not sound like they're painting a very rosy picture of the northern kingdom at this time. And so the question for us that we ought to be asking is, how is it that the northern kingdom of, of Israel found themselves dwelling in such deep darkness? What was it that was going on that turned the lights out? Well, there's at least three things, a number of things we could point to, but at least three things that we could look at that were a part of the contribution to the deep darkness of the north. Uh, The first reason that we might think about is that they were very war-weary at that time. They were very war-weary. Because of their location in the far northern part of Israel, they were the first place that an enemy would invade. Most of Israel's enemies had invaded from the north. And so the region of the northern part of the country was the first exposure. uh, Naphtali and Zebulun, who are referenced here in Isaiah's prophecy, are two of the tribes in the north. They're representative of the whole, but they were the first spot where the enemy would invade. And the Assyrians had begun invading Israel at that time, and they were experiencing a lot of war and challenge and strife. And so one of the reasons why there was a deep darkness in the north was because of the wars that were being waged around them. But a second reason why they were experiencing this deep darkness is because the truth had gotten twisted in the north. The truth had been twisted. Now remember, Rehoboam led Judah in the south, and uh, Jeroboam led Israel in the north. Apparently in that era, you had to be an Oboam to lead the country, I guess, right? Um, it made it easy on the ballot. We knew who to vote for. They just had Oboam in the name. It just it's a bad joke. Okay, so anyway, Jeroboam was in the north. Now, Jeroboam, as he led the nation of Israel, he wanted to keep everything for himself. And he did not want the people of the north to travel to the southern kingdom of Judah in order to worship. And in the southern kingdom of Judah was the city of Jerusalem where the temple was located. 
And so Jeroboam had to come up with an alternate system for worship. And so here's what he did. He built altars in the city of Dan and in the city of Bethel. And as he built these two altars for worship, he invited the people of the northern kingdom to go and worship in one of those two locations. 1 Kings chapter 12 tells us. But do you know what he put in those locations as a representation for the people to worship? He built altars with golden calves. Can you imagine that? Friends, this is a reminder that not all tradition is good. Israel had traditionally worshipped golden calves, but that was the wrong tradition, right? He delved back into their history, and he, he erected golden calves, and he said, these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. Bow down and worship them. The truth had gotten twisted in the north. They were worshiping pagan gods and worshiping in pagan ways and in methods that God never intended. The truth had gotten twisted, and the people found themselves living in a deep darkness. Not only that, but their identity had been intercepted. Their identity as a people had been intercepted. Remember, 10 tribes in the north. You know what the most prominent city in the north kingdom was? It's the city of Samaria. Why do we know that name? Well, primarily we know that name because Jesus tells a story about a good Samaritan. And the Samaritans were despised people. Why? Because they were part Jewish, but they had lost their identity as a people. They had intermarried with other nations. They had followed after other gods. They had truncated the scripture. They had twisted the truth. They had lost their identity as God's people. And that losing of their identity is something that had happened in the day of Isaiah. Because those 10 tribes in the north, when the Assyrians came in, you know what they did? They dispersed them throughout the peoples. And they intermarried and they lost their identity. Why is it that when we think of the nation of Israel today, we call them Jews? You know, you, know, you know why we do that? You know what Jew sounds like? Judah, the nation in the south. The north lost their identity. So now we refer to only the southern nation as the identity. Now, before God, praise God, He knows their identity, and he will call them back. We see a hope and a future in the book of Revelation, but we see in this time they were living in deep darkness. They had lost their identity. They were war-weary. The truth had been twisted. Darkness had enshrouded the nation. Now, why do I go into all of that detail, right? Why do we talk about this? I mean, these are, are, are people that lived... 2,700 years ago, what possible connection could they have with us? Well, I think that there's some connection, right? You feel like you live in a world, a world that is war-weary? How many wars have been fought in the last 100 years? How many terror attacks do we see on a week-by-week basis? How much challenge do you experience in, in our world in your own home? I mean, how many of you have some kind of security at your house, whether it's a barking dog or a keypad on the wall? Just a reminder of the challenge that we face inside of our world. We, we face a challenge. We're, we're in a war-weary 
world. Not, not only that, but the truth is twisted today just as it was then. There are so many who are calling us to worship at the altar of naturalism or humanism or to follow after another God or to exchange the truth of God for a lie as it relates to a biblical understanding of sexuality or whatever it might be. Friends, we live in a world where the truth is being twisted around us and we have the effects of that. It's like darkness in the area where we live. And we have been created in the image of God, designed to worship him, and yet we forget that. Our identity has been intercepted somewhere along the way. We live in the midst of deep darkness. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul talks about living in this present age of life, and this is what he says. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul talks about life right now as a life that groans. Isaiah talked about life now as a life of gloom and contempt and anguish. Now, aren't you glad you came to church today? That we could talk and reflect about gloom and anguish and sorrow? Friends, if if that was all there was, we would just describe the loss and the brokenness of the world. But friends, the gospel is greater. And the hope that we have in Jesus overcomes even that darkness. As we're here today and as we gather, you are struggling in the midst of this dark world. Depression is at sky-high rates. Death and despair and divorce and struggle with sin and abuse and addiction, these are the things that are around us. We live in deep darkness. But wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a light that could pierce that darkness? Wouldn't it be wonderful if a light could shine and we could gather around it and find direction for today and hope for tomorrow? Friends, we can. And we see that in the Scripture. Because on those who are dwelling in deep darkness, guess what? The light shines. Now, where do we see that inside of the passage? Remember, This is talking about the northern kingdom. It's talking about the deep darkness and the anguish and the gloom and the sorrow that they are dealing with. But listen to the transformation that is talked about of what God can do, will do, and is doing for them and for us. The first thing we see in this transformation is in verse 1. Those who were in contempt have been made glorious. Glory has come to those who are contempt. We see that inside of the passage. The, the one who, is, who comes will, will do so, it says in verse two, along, or verse one, along the way of the sea. Think about it this way. The, the ones who were dominated by the nations would be a group of people who would provide a blessing to the nations along the way of the sea. The way of the sea was the I-35 of their day, a prominent highway connecting Egypt to Mesopotamia, running right through Zebulun and Naphtali, 
the area of Galilee. That highway would be the, 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 the path where the gospel would go to the very world. The light is coming on. Verse 2 goes on and talks about those who walk in darkness, seeing a great light, no longer stumbling about, but guided by the truth, no longer having it twisted, but walking in light of reality. The ones who were dwelling in that deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Verse 3 continues, the ones who were shrinking as a nation, being dispersed among the peoples. Instead of shrinking to some small remnant, verse 3 tells us that they will be multiplied. Verse 3 also tells us that those who were experiencing gloom will have joy. Joy like someone celebrating a harvest or joy like someone receiving the spoils or the presents after they've won a battle. Gloom is replaced with joy. This is the transformation that is to come. The ones who have been defeated, verse 4 tells us, will experience a supernatural victory. Remember, that northern nation, they had been dominated by Assyria. They had lost the fight. But Isaiah tells them that the time will come when victory will come to them, and that victory will come as in the days of Midian. Well, what is he talking about? Is that name Midian ring a bell? ought to hearken our minds back to the time of the judges, the days of Gideon, the judge, when God brought a supernatural victory to the people. It was a promise of a supernatural victory. Verse 5 lets us know that the ones who were first to see war will see war no more. They were war-weary, but there would come a time when wars would cease. The wars would cease with so much so that the instruments of war, whether it was their armor or their, their weapons, would actually be burned in the fire because they would no longer be needed because war would stop. This is the transformation that is promised. Not only that, but this northern kingdom that had found themselves divided from the south and a, apart from the city of Jerusalem Verse 7 lets us know that one day they would be reunited together in one nation under one king who would sit on David's throne and would reign over them forever and ever in fulfillment of a prophecy given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. Friends, this is a massive, massive transformation that is promised. Those who lived in deep darkness, on them a light would shine. Those who walked in darkness would see a great light. Now, what would be the catalyst that would bring about all of these changes? Well, that catalyst is found in verse 6. What does it say in verse 6? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, friends, who is that? It's a real question. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Jesus. Jesus, right? We have a promise. And all of the blessings that we just talked about, the gloom being replaced with joy and peace replacing war and things twisted being made straight again and that which was reducing being multiplied. Friends, that happens when Jesus shows up. 
Now, Jesus is described in a number of different ways. Verse 6 goes on to say that the son that is given will have the government placed upon his shoulders. Now, imagine a nation that had been led by such terrible kings as the northern kingdom of Israel, finding out that the, the government would be taken from those terrible kings and placed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God himself. What hope? No wonder, no wonder this kind of change could happen. It's no longer going to be led by broken men. It's going to be led by perfect God. We see that transformation taking place. Not only that, but a number of names are given, nicknames of Jesus are given. He will be a wonderful counselor, not just an average counselor, not just a so-so counselor, but he will be wonderful People will gather around because he will know what to do and be able to share wise counsel about the direction that we are to go and the way that we are to follow. Not only that, but he will be mighty God. He will know the direction we're to go, but he will also be able to get us there. There's no end to his power. He's the everlasting Father. Now, this can be a little confusing for us because normally, because of the, our understanding of the Trinity, we think of you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Is this saying that Jesus, God the Son, is somehow God the Father? No. When, when it says everlasting Father, it's a title. It's saying that Jesus is the, the source of all eternity. John chapter 8 and verse 44 talks about Satan as the father of lies. Jesus here is called the father of eternity. If you want lies, follow Satan. If you want eternity, follow Christ. He's the prince of peace. Why is it that the instruments of war will be burned up? Because when the prince of peace establishes his kingdom, there's no need any longer for an army or for tanks or for defenses. His government will increase. And as he establishes it, he will rule with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There is so much corruption in this world, friends. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a world that is governed with justice and with righteousness? Every child that is trafficked in the world today, all discrimination and abuse and those things, wouldn't it be wonderful if one day justice and righteousness were the principles on which the world is ruled. This passage lets us know that day will come with Christ. Not only that, but there's a guarantee. How will it happen? How can we be so sure this will happen? We can be so sure this will happen because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. In other words, it's not dependent upon us. This is going to happen because God will make it happen. We have that much confidence in this. In all of that package of Isaiah chapter 9 and that prophecy and that look ahead was saying this is what will happen when Jesus comes. This was the understanding of Isaiah regarding the Messiah, and it's also the understanding of the New Testament writer Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, 
who, directed by the Spirit of God, said this about Jesus and his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. See if this rings a bell for you. It says, now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, why did he go into Galilee? In leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, why did Jesus go there to base his ministry out of in the, in the north? Well, he, Matthew tells us, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What he was saying was, Jesus was the child. Jesus was the one who would make the promise of Isaiah chapter 9 come true. And then he concludes and says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, friends, here is the question that I have for us. Did Jesus do all of those things in Isaiah 9 when he first came to the earth? Have wars ceased? Real question. Have, have wars ceased? Okay. Have, you know, is the world ruled with justice and with righteousness? Has the light already shone? So, so here's the question. Was Matthew mistaken? Was Isaiah mistaken? And the answer to that is a definitive no. But what both Isaiah and Matthew were saying was, just as Jesus came, so also we believe he will come again. And when he comes again, he will make good on all of the promises of Isaiah 9. You know, friends, often we, we think about Jesus merely as our spiritual Savior, and that's appropriate. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a need to have our sins forgiven. And when Jesus died on the cross, he made the payment for the forgiveness of our sins. But friends, Jesus came to do more than just save us from our sins. Jesus has come to fulfill the promises of God and to bring righteousness to this earth. And so as we gather today, certainly we run to Christ. And as Jesus preached his message. We repent of our sin. We run to him. We believe in his name. But guess what? We do so with an incredible hope that the pain and the darkness that we experience today will be pierced by his light. And that one day there's a solution to all of the pain and the problems that we experience and we see. And it, that, that solution is Jesus himself. So let's run to him. And today, allow his light to light our path as we live in this darkness and have our eyes look towards the future when his light will, will shine so bright, it will drive the darkness away from everywhere forever. Now, one last thing. I'd like to just encourage us with today. When you have the light, don't you want to share it? Let me just 
Think about this for a moment. We live in Oklahoma, right? Some of you are new to our state, and if you are, what I'm getting ready to tell you is somewhat prophetic. You, you will come to know, Carly, what this means here uh, soon, soon enough. Um, but, but here's the thing with Oklahoma. In the wintertime, we don't get snow. We get ice. And when ice falls on power lines, occasionally those power lines will weigh down and snap and break. Now, when those power lines snap and break, there will be one person on your block who thought ahead and got the generator. And you will be sitting in cold darkness on your street while your neighbor is watching the bowl game, okay? Um, Now, here's the thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they would have a sense of hospitality? It would invite you to come down and sit with them in their warmth, and with their food, and watch the game. That would be a nice and a neighborly thing to do, wouldn't it? Now, here's the thing. We live in a dark world. We live in darkness. And it's not unique to you and your family, but it's universal in the lives of all around us. And when we gather here, we're talking about the light of life, the light of men. And we gain direction and we see hope in light of that light. And if that's the case, if we have gathered around this light, wouldn't it make sense for us to look out into our dark world and invite those that we meet to come and gather around the light with us, to be warmed by its truth and fire? And so here's what I would ask you to do. This Christmas season... Would you invite some people to come to the light with you? As you live your life, just turn your ears on. And when you hear people talking about the darkness, and it has a lot of different forms, right? Just say something simple to them like, you know what? I've found hope and light in Jesus. And we're talking about that at our church all month long. Would you come and sit with me? as we learn about this and worship together? Now, some of you towards the back are going, there's not seats next to me. But there's a few up here in the front. So when you invite them to come, either come early or move towards the front. But let's fill this room with people. Not so that we could say, wow, we have a lot of people here. But so that we could take the light that God has given us in Christ and invite others to warm themselves around it. If you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, know that there is a light of life that desires to shine on your soul even this morning. And when we get conclude here in a moment, I'd love to have you come forward. I'd love to be able to pray with you. Some of us, others of us up here at the foot of the cross that would love to pray with you. Um, and talk about what it means to follow Christ together. But for all of us, let's remember the hope that is found in Jesus. Let's invite others to be a part of it. In your chairs today, you may have seen some little cards like this. Um, If there weren't in your chair, there's some at the the desks when you check in, uh, the welcome desk and things. Take as many of these as you you need um, to go and invite others to warm themselves around the light of Christ this Christmas. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship today.
Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus and the fact that in Christ we celebrate God with us, our hope for all time. Father, may we all repent of our own ways and come to you, that we would walk away from the darkness of our own doing and the darkness of the world around us and find forgiveness and hope and life in Jesus. Thank you that he has guaranteed the reality of Isaiah 9. And thank you that we live today with a knowledge that he will come again one day to deliver on that promise. We want to be with him in that time. May we trust him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.